Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. Okay, so let's pr- let's pray. Let's let's do, let's do this. I'm gonna save my introduction. Let's pray. Everybody, turn to First Corinthians chapter seven. We're gonna start in verse seventeen today. So be ready. All right. Today's sermon is titled "The Dynamics of Marriage and Singleness," Part Three. Big surprise. I'm running out of creative things to say in my titles, but the subtitle for this week will be contentment. All right, who doesn't need some contentment? We, we all need con- contentment, whether we're single or we're married uh, or in any of our life circumstances. We need to learn to be content in the Lord. And so let's pray and ask that God be with us, and then we'll get right into the passage. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Uh, thank you for my fr- friends. Thank you for, these are my uh, people. These are my, um, this is my family. And uh, I'm so grateful that you've given them to me. Uh, And uh, Lord, I pray that we would have a love for one another that looks like sacrifice and it looks like uh, serving and striving. And Lord, I pray that you would continue uh, to allow us to be there for one another in hardship. And I know, Lord, that right now there are people that are going through hard times and they're facing trials and temptations that they, they maybe have never faced before. And so, Lord, I pray that as a family, we would be there for one another and that your spirit would thrive in us and uh, in our relationships. And so help us. God, teach us contentment. Use today's sermon uh, to drive us towards being grateful for whatever, whatever our life looks like. We need to be grateful for it. We need to be thankful for where you've put us and, and the seasons that we're in. And so help us to receive our calling uh, with joy and happiness. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17 reads as follows. But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk. And so ordain I in all the churches, is any man called being circumcised? Let him not be uncircumcised. Is any called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it. But if thou mayest be, uh, mayest be made free, use it rather. For he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's free man. Likewise, also he that is called, being free, is Christ's servant. You are bought with a price. Be not Ye the servants of men, brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. Okay, so what does this passage have to do with marriage and singleness? Right? It doesn't seem as though this fits. It's like this just gets dropped. This stuff about circumcision just gets dropped right in the middle of a passage about marriage. Right? It doesn't seem as though it fits. But it is quite simple. Okay, it is quite simple. This passage is about contentment. And in a world where we, we never have enough, do you guys recognize that? That's kind of the world that we live in where it just never seems to be enough. We're never really gratified with anything. But maybe for moments, right? Fleeting moments, chasing after happiness and satisfaction. In a world like that, it is incredibly important that we learn contentment. And I think especially in the context of marriage and singleness, we're always longing for something more. If you're single, you're longing to be married, right? You're longing for partnership. You're longing for that person who will love you, be intimate with you, and share life with you. And you think about it, and it preoccupies your thoughts. You're always wanting that thing. And then when you're married, your partner is never enough. They're never nice enough to you. They never listen good enough. They never clean the house well enough for you. And there's always this longing for something different than what you have. 
You don't even need to be trained in that way. I mean, even though the culture props that up and, and that's the world that we live in, that's your flesh. If it was only just you, your flesh would tell you that you want more, that you deserve more. And so today we're going to be talking about contentment. What does it look like to be satisfied with exactly where you are in life, whether you're married or single? And here's the question for today. Are you content in your current calling? So if you're writing stuff down, this is, this is the first thing you want to get down. Are you content in your current calling? And by calling, I mean where God has led you and directed you to be. Now this question has implications that go far beyond our marital status. Okay? This is a question that impacts every aspect of our life. Our job, our schooling, our relationships with other people, our financial situations. It goes on and on and on and on. We're always wanting more. But we have to ask ourselves every single day, are we content in where God has called us to be? So let's start here. Let's start in verse 17. It's really quiet. It's really quiet in here today. You guys are really focused, right? Let's start here in verse 17, where it talks about how God distributes. But as God hath distributed to every man. All right, now, now what does this mean? What does this mean that he's distributing? What, what is this distributing? Well, first of all, we know from Scripture that God gives every person that comes to know him, that puts their faith in him, the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the very first gift that we get. That's the very first thing that God distributes to us when we receive him as our Savior, is his Holy Spirit. Okay, so each of us in here, you know, none of us are unique in that way, right? Any of us that have accepted Christ as our Savior are indwelt with the Spirit, and there's nothing different among us in that regard. But then what happens is God begins to distribute in a distinct way. He begins to dole out gifts that look different from one person to the next, Right? Every person receiving a different gift set upon their salvation and based upon the needs in the mission that surround them. God begins to give them gifts, and it does make us distinct. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 says, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit withal. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and the selfsame Spirit dividing to every man severally as he will. God's Spirit is doling out gifts to every believer according to his own wisdom. You didn't get to select that gifting, did you? Right? You didn't get to select that. That was given to you. It was God-ordained. It's circumstantial based on God's providence and his observations of who he wants you to be. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about gifts later on in 1 Corinthians, okay? We're going to talk about these gifts specifically. But what you need to know right now is that God has made you distinct. He's made you distinct, and he's outfitted you according to his agenda, his agenda in your life. He's outfitted you. But his distribution goes beyond our spiritual gifts. It goes just beyond the gifts that he's given you, and it, and it bleeds over into the fact that God orchestrates the circumstances of our life in order to enhance those gifts and their working out in ministry. So there's a lot that you can't control here, right? You can't control how God made you spiritually, but you also can't control so many of the circumstances that surround your life. The parents that he gave you, right? Where you were born, where you grew up, what schools you went to, the acquaintances that you came in contact with, right? The type of money that you had growing up, the opportunities that you have. All of these things are outside of your control. 
And there are circumstantial things that God has brought into your life that he has ordained that he sees as necessary for you and necessary for who he wants you to be in the context of his mission. Jeremiah 10, 23 says this. O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. The direction, the position, the way in which we would go is not in us. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. No, God does that. Psalm 37, 23 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Here's our first key point. God authors, God distributes, and directs the substance of our lives. Okay, what do I mean by that? God is ordering, ordering our life circumstances and resources in such a way that complements our spiritual development and his divine plan for us. He's got a plan for you. You are unique. You are special to the Lord. And he has provided for you in a very particular way because he wants to use your life and leverage your life to optimize his kingdom agenda. So whether we're married or we're single, we must know that God has given us grace for that particular circumstance. He's given us grace for that. And so you want to be married. Okay, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be married. But the question is, are you content in the season that you're in? And are you leveraging it for his mission? Okay, so you're married. But you want more. Are you content with the person that you've married? And despite their weaknesses, are you willing to move forward in faith knowing that God wants to use your circumstances? Whether we're rich or poor, God has given us grace for our provision. Whether we're gifted at speaking or we're shy, God has given us grace to minister to souls. Whether we're tall or we're short, God has given grace because he wants to use you just the way you are. The shorties over here are all like giggling. <laughs> Teresa's like, yep. How, what are all the ways in which God is using your shortness, Teresa, for his glory? <laughs> o- only he knows. His ways are mysterious. <laughs> what? That's right. Your, your physical presence alone lifts people up. But see, here's the problem with all these differences among us. Is that we have a tendency to compare ourselves to each other. We have a tendency to look at brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so and say that they've got it better than us. And we ought not compare ourselves because God has done the distributing. God has done the distributing. 2 Corinthians 10, 12 says, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves And comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. We will not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. So here's our next key point. Don't despise what God has done in you because you covet what someone else has. That's the way it works. You don't You don't despise yourself or hate yourself or or loathe yourself until you start looking at someone else's circumstances, until you see someone else's marriage. Oh, if I could just have a, a guy like that in my life. And then you just get lower and lower and lower and lower. And you begin to grow depressed and disappointed the lot that you have in your life. Why? Because you want what other people have. And the problem is, if you had exactly what you want, you still wouldn't be happy. Because you have a tendency to despise what God has done in you. 
Now, how messed up is that? See, I can, I can literally give every one of my children balloons. You know, kids love balloons. Right? Any event that a child is at, and there are balloons, okay, they're asking for the balloons. Right? They want the balloons. Now, I could give every single one of my kids a balloon, and they would find a way to be discontent with that. But you gave Shepard the blue balloon. And I have a red balloon, and I prefer blue. I want the blue balloon. They're all balloons. <laughs> they all do the same thing. In 20 minutes from now, that balloon is going to fly away, and you'll never see it again. Someone's going to pop the balloon. There will be no balloon. Tw give it 20 minutes. Okay, so it's that discontentment that we enact against God when he has given us with measure, mind you, he's distributed to us exactly what we need for life. And we look at him and we say, it's not good enough, God. So here's some questions that we need to consider. What is better for you? What is better for you? What God has given you or what someone else has? What's, what, I mean, let's, let's be honest with ourselves. This is a really simple question. What is better? What God, the creator of the universe, who's known every moment that you've ever lived, has counted the hairs on your head and knows every tear you've ever cried? He knit you in your mother's womb. Who knows what's best for you? The one that actually gave you the gifts or what you desire for yourself in your own fleshly stupidity? Who knows what's best? Who knows what's better, God or you? Here's another question. Does he not know you intimately? Can he not prescribe exactly the gift and the circumstances necessary to optimize your life for the greatest fulfillment and purpose and joy and happiness possible? Do you think he doesn't want you to be happy? Of course he wants you to be happy. Now, he's not concerned so much with your circumstantial happiness. He's concerned with the pleasure that you derive from obeying him. And so you don't always have to like it, and sometimes it's tough. You've got to grapple with your circumstances. You've got to work through it, but you've got to get on the same page with him because he knows better, and he wants to use you to your fullest capacity. He doesn't want to waste anything. He doesn't want to waste a moment. Even in your waiting, he's not wasting Is God withholding from you? I mean, I think that's the thing that we often think, that God is withholding from us. Is he keeping something good from you? Or have you decided in your flesh that you have a better plan for your life? So none of this, none of this is proper thinking, right? None of this is good. God has given you what he's given you because he's calling you to what he's calling you. He, he's, he's given you exactly what he's given you, knowing that he's calling you specifically, unique individual that he's crafted. He's calling you to something specific. So he's got to outfit you appropriate to where he's taking you. Right? He's providing you a coat for cold weather. He's providing you an umbrella for the spring rain. He's given you the gifts that he's given you for the place that you're in. And he's, he's given you a, single, a season of singleness or a marriage relationship because he knows what's best for you. He knows. God's authorship in your life is directly related to his calling. So let's look at that. Verse 17. But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk, and so ordain I in all churches. What God has distributed to you has a direct correlation on his purpose for your life. And literally, the only thing that can get in the way of that is if you choose not to walk according to that calling. The only thing that can get in the way of that is determining that God's way for you is not right, and so you make your own path. 
That's the, way, that's the way that works. So here's the next key point. Walking in accordance with your calling is the embodiment of contentment. Choosing to simply comply with where you're at in life and where God has placed you and the path that he's placed you on and the gifts that he's given you and the season that you're in, simply saying, I will walk this way is the embodiment, is the action, it is the behavior of contentment, of being gratified in God himself. And so if none of your circumstances, none of your circumstances are the circumstances that you would choose, are you, are you happy just knowing that Christ is walking with you? See, this is what Paul says he's ordained Okay, that word ordained means commissioned in all the churches. All the churches that he's ministered to. He's telling them to walk according to your calling. And he's not lying and he's not exaggerating in that. He uses variations on the word walk 32 times in nine letters. Which is more than anyone else, any other author in scripture uses the word walk Save Moses, who also uses it 32 times in five books. But you know, Moses walked for 40 years. So <laughs> he literally was walking a lot. So he uses the word walk a lot. So Moses and Paul, they're tied for talking about walking. But Paul makes a big deal about this idea of, of walking, walking according to your calling. Colossians 1.10 says that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 says that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Furthermore, 1 Thessalonians 4.1, furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus that as ye have received us, how you ought to walk and to please God so you would abound more and more. See, God wants to use your walk to abound and to live according to what he's called you to. And I'm not saying it's going to be easy. It's going to be difficult because there's a lot of stuff about your life that you just don't like. I mean, it's kind of a crappy life in some regards, isn't it? We live in a cursed world where everything around us just seems to fail all the time. Nothing seems to work the way we want it to. People, people never act right toward each other all the time, even if they love each other. We treat each other poorly. I mean, it's just, it's, there's a lot about life to be disappointed about. I'm not saying it's not hard. What I'm saying is it's worth grappling with God over. And in time, in time, we must learn to be content because ultimately we know that God's way is better than ours. Hebrews 13, 5 says, let your conversation be without covetousness. That word covetousness means to desire things that he's not given you. And be content with such things as he have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Now, I want, you to, I want to point out briefly, you know, sometimes when we read the Bible, we read things and we, we take them in the abstract. We don't look closely at what it's saying. Okay, God, God is saying to us here, he says, don't covet. Don't desire what other people have. Be content with what I've given you, what you have. Why? Like, why, why ought we be content? Because he will never leave us or forsake us. And that should be enough. That knowledge should be enough that no matter our circumstances, we should be satisfied. He's never going to leave you. Never. No, no, no matter how terrible you are, if you've been found in Christ, if you've received his salvation, if you've been made a child, if the Holy Spirit indwells you, 
He will never forsake you. And that should be enough. Now, Paul's going to illustrate this idea for us, okay? And he's going to use circumcision, okay, as, as much as we don't want to talk about circumcision this morning. He's going to use circumcision as an illustration for us. In fact, he gives us two illustrations that we're going to look at. So what is circumcision? We should start there. What is it? Okay. Well, circumcision is the removal of the foreskin off of the male genitalia. Okay. Off the penis. I try to avoid using the word penis in the pulpit, but there's sometimes you can't, you can't avoid it. Did anybody ever play the game penis in middle school? Is where you yell it? Where, where you and your friends, this is probably just guys that played this. But in middle school in the lunchroom, Whoever could yell the, the, that word the loudest won, and they, someone bought them cookies, or maybe everybody did. It always started real quiet, and then it accelerates over about a five-minute period, and then someone says it, like screams it, that guy wins. They get a bag of cookies. Congratulations. So now we know that, that historically, historically, The Jewish people took circumcision very seriously. They took it very seriously because it was a command that God gave to Abraham. And the work of circumcision, the act of being circumcised, was tied directly to the faith of the people. And salvation in the nation of Israel was contingent on whether or not they were willing to obey God in this matter. Genesis 17, 10 says, This is my covenant, which ye shall keep, between me and you, and thy thy seed after thee, every man-child among you shall be circumcised. And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man-child in your generations. He that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of thy seed, He that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man, a man child, whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people and he hath broken my covenant. So you can see that the Jews took this act of circumcision really seriously. But here's the deal. When Christ came, when Christ gave his life for the, for the sins of the world, and he paid that, paid for your debt, the circumcision was no longer necessary. It no longer defined salvation. Okay? And those laws and those duties were no longer necessary. A superior work had been done in Christ. Jesus Christ declared all men free. Anyone who would put their faith in him, free. Free. Now that included Jew and Gentile alike. And so one of the things that we see in our scriptures and in history is that when Jews came to know Christ and Gentiles came to know Christ, there was often conflict surrounding this matter of circumcision. Okay, when these two worlds collided into each other, okay, obviously the Greeks, the Gentiles, didn't require, in their faith systems, didn't require circumcision. And so there was this issue of whether or not it was necessary. Now, this conflict spilled over into Acts chapter 15. Do you guys remember when we studied that in Acts, right? Where Paul went to Jerusalem, and before the council of the apostles and and the pastors in Jerusalem, they had a little debate about whether or not it was necessary for the Gentiles to get circumcised. And ultimately, everyone agreed that Jesus's Death, burial, and resurrection was sufficient for the work of salvation, and that circumcision would not be required, and that the Jewish believers and leaders in the church would not pressure people to be circumcised. Okay, and so Paul Paul goes about teaching that. He teaches it in Romans and in Galatians, and, and, and we see over in Hebrews, we see over and over again Paul making sure that people understand that the law is not necessary for salvation. Now, despite that fact, despite that everybody knew that, knew that and con- concurred on that matter, 
There were people that they refer to in, in Scripture and in history as Judaizers. Okay, these were Jewish believers who went to these cities where Paul had been, and they tried to convince the Gentiles that they needed to be circumcised. All right? Now, that's a lot of pressure, okay? And very practically, what these Jews were saying is that you are not good enough. That your faith in Jesus Christ is not good enough. There's actually something wrong with your body and something needs to be done about it. So those Gentile believers were made to feel inferior because they'd not been circumcised, messed up. Now, in Corinth, the issue was the exact opposite, all right? And history makes this very, very plain for us, okay? The issue was the exact opposite. So the Jews living in Corinth in a Grecian, a Roman society, right, would go into bathhouses, okay? Now, we don't have bathhouses anymore. That sounds real freaky, doesn't it? It sounds weird. No, we don't go to bathhouses, but back in the day, this was the equivalent of going to the gym or relaxing in a spa. And so men often would, I don't know, after work, want, you know, want to chill, want to relax before they go home to the kids, right? They want to decompress. They would go to the bathhouse and they'd hang out butt naked. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. That's what they did. They were just hanging out, okay? They're hanging out in the spa, Chilling, relaxing, okay? Now, there was pressure in that time period for the Jewish people living in the Roman society to have their circumcision reversed, can you believe it? And they've actually found medical texts that, that where doctors were perfecting the art of reversing circumcision. Now, I don't know how, okay? Some sort, some sort of plastic surgery, some sort of implementation. I didn't research it. I didn't, I didn't search Google images on this, okay? <laughs> so forgive me. I don't know how they did it. But it's historical fact that, that there were surgeries being done, plastic surgery, to reverse, to reverse circumcision. I'm really hating 1 Corinthians chapter 7 at this point, okay? It's been rough <laughs> talking about this kind of stuff. Now, Why? Why? Because in the Corinthian society, the Jews were made to feel inferior because of how they looked, because their body didn't match the cultural standard. You see where I'm going with this? Verse 18, is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Makes that passage make sense, doesn't it? Is any called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. So Paul is saying, listen, Paul is saying, be content with your physical circumstances. So if you're circumcised, don't desire to be uncircumcised. And if you're uncircumcised, don't desire to be circumcised. Why? Verse 19, circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. That every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. So let me make a really important point right here before I make a bigger, more abstract point. And that's this. God has made you exactly the way that he wanted to make you. And you were not born with mistakes you were not born with deficiencies in God's eyes. And so we ought to be thankful and content with how he has made us in our bodies, the way that we look. Psalm 139, verse 14 says this. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works. And that my soul knoweth right well my substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. 
Verse 16, thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book, all my members, every body part, every finger, every toe, every nose, every hair, every eye color, in thy book, all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned when as, ye, as yet there was none of them. So plainly speaking, don't you dare despise what God has done in you. Don't hate yourself because of the way that you look. Don't despise the shape of your nose or the color of your eyes or the way that your hair does this or that. Don't despise that. God has made you. He loves you. He's made you that way with a purpose. You are not lesser than anyone else despite the fact that you spend so much of your life comparing yourself to other people. You are not less in God's eyes. So there's an even greater truth that's being symbolized here. And it's this. Don't obsess over what you don't have. Take joy by abiding, by walking in what you do have. Your marital status is not a deficit. Your marital status is your asset. It's your asset. Whether single or married, use it. Leverage it in your pursuit of Christ and in his mission. Now, Paul uses another example here to help us. And that's this. It's an issue of position, being content in your position. Okay, verse 21. Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it. In other words, don't regard that. Don't make a thing of that. But if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. For, the, uh, for he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's free man. Likewise, also, he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. Now, during this time period, when this letter was being written, about 50% of the Roman Empire were part of the slave class. So 50%. I mean, that's the world that they lived in. 50% of the people in that world were considered servants. Now, the, the thing about that is, when we talk about slavery in this time period, it's not like what we think of it in America, right? It wasn't race-oriented, okay? It was class-oriented, and it wasn't man-stealing. It was what we would refer to as indentured slavery. And so you could be a doctor or an engineer or an architect and still be a part of the servant class, and you would have masters that controlled aspects of your life. Does that make sense? And so it's a little bit different than the way that we often perceive it. Now, let's, let's be honest with ourselves. No one wants to be a servant. No one back then wanted to be a servant, okay? Even if it didn't look like the way we imagined servanthood, it still wasn't the preferred status of one's life. But one of the things that we need to note here in Scripture is that God never advocates rebellion against the position that he's put you in. And no place in Scripture says that people ought to bear arms and rise up and kill off the master class and set themselves free. There's no place in Scripture that does that. Now, God does make provision that if someone can find a way out of the servant class, that they should. That's cool. Great. If you can do that, cool. But the point that God makes time and time again is that you ought to be content with your position and your class and your station in life, no matter where you're at. What God advocates for is submission and contentment. Why? Because despite the fact that we might dislike our lives, our jobs, right, our bosses, the amount of money that we make, never it's never what we want it to be, despite all that, 
God is saying, be content with where I have you. When I was, uh, I don't know, y'all's age, I worked at, uh, oh, I won't say the business. I won't say it. Okay? Shh, shh, shh. Okay? I don't want to put anybody on blast. Not, not out loud. Except, unless it's Bart Ehrman. I'll put him on blast. No. So I, uh, I didn't like my job. After three years of working in marketing and design, I knew that I needed to get out. Okay? I need, like, and it wasn't, it wasn't a matter of, of the career itself. It was where I worked. I just, I just didn't enjoy the management and the owner of the company. Okay? I, just didn't, I just didn't enjoy him. Uh, he was always cussing people out. And at one point, it took everything in me to not respond when he, he physically put his hands on me, okay? This, was, this guy wasn't any good. And so I was, like, miserable. And I started looking. I started applying and applying at different places. I was interviewing. Interviews were going good. But during that time frame, this is just post 9-11. We were getting ready for a recession. People weren't really hiring, Okay? And so it was really difficult. I wasn't getting the job that I wanted. I, didn't, I wasn't getting out. And so what was happening was I was every day coming home depressed, upset, frustrated, and ultimately I was discontent. I was completely discontent. And I had to learn to be satisfied with my situation. I had to, I had to learn that where I was at was okay. And so what I decided to do was I am going to live and work at my job as though my boss is Jesus. As though everything I do is done in order to honor him and his wishes. And when I started doing that, within six months, God rerouted my entire life. God showed me exactly what I was supposed to do, exactly who I was supposed to be. I quit design, I quit marketing, I became a teacher. And I I think, I think that's what I was supposed to do. That was my calling. Now, listen to me. It wasn't until I found my satisfaction in Christ that he gave me the answers I needed for the next season of my life. And now, what I'm not saying to you is that once you're happy at what you're doing, that God's just going to fix all your problems. That's the key that unlocks the door. I don't know what he's doing in your life, but I know this, that whatever it is that he's doing, he wants you to be satisfied and grateful for where you're at. Because what he's doing is he's refining you, he's molding you, he's aligning you, and he's placing you on the path that you're supposed to be in. He wanted me to be a teacher. I have no doubt about that. But it took this weird season of dissatisfaction for me to be in a place where I was willing to hear that. Otherwise, I would have just kept looking for jobs, and who knows, even right now, I would be working at some design firm or marketing firm and be completely outside of the will of God, right? So what we need to understand is that despite the fact that we might dislike our positions in life, we are not in bondage to any person. I wasn't a slave to my employer. I was a slave to the one who set me free. We are not in bondage to any person. We are in bondage to Christ, and he is the freer, the liberator of our souls. And this is the point behind his illustration, is to remind us that our positional circumstances or station in life is inconsequential in light of the freedom that Christ has given us. Key point. Your life status is not a hindrance. It's not a hindrance. You think it's a hindrance. Well, it's because your perceptions are wrong. Your life status is not a hindrance. It's an enhancement to your spiritual calling. Despite how terrible it might feel in, in, in any given moment, despite how difficult it might seem, where God has you is an enhancement to your spiritual calling. And so there is where we abide. We abide. Now he uses this word abide several times in the passage, and he uses it again here in verse 24. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. 
abide. See, isn't that the answer? Isn't, isn't that the solution? Is it so many of us aren't content because we're not with God in our endeavors? So what's the application here? If you're single, be content. If you're married, be content. If you're married and your spouse is not following Jesus Christ and nothing seems right about your relationship, be content. Be content. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 says this. You can follow along on the screen. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world. Did you know that? We brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. In other words, the, the only stipulation on your contentment is that, is that I should at least have clothes and I should have food. Oh, and it's funny because Jesus Christ promises that anyone that follows him, he will always make provision in that way for. That's interesting. But we ought to be content. But they that will be rich, they fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. So actually, actually, there is no real value in you having one more pair of Jordans. And there is, there is no value in you having a big bank account. And there's no value in you driving a nice car or you spending all that time scrolling through Amazon looking for the perfect pair of pants. Whatever it is that you do, whatever it is that you're looking for, another video game, another video game system, they come and go, don't they? I mean, what do you want? Because the truth is, if you're rich, if you live rich, you're only just positioning yourself for greater temptation. All that you have, you think it's so good. Listen, for the love of money, not money itself, the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. If you're broke, be content. If you dislike your job, be content. If you're struggling in relationships, be content. We have to learn this. We have to learn this. And I think, I think this is the addendum that we needed to the spring retreat. Because I know a lot of you are interested in one another and you're interested in dating and you ought to, you ought to. You ought, you ought to consider marriage. You ought to pursue people. It's okay, it's okay. But listen to me. As we said before, we ought not compromise our faith and what God has called us to. And there's many of you in relationships who are compromising God's calling on your life because you can't be content. And at the end of the day, you would rather be single than with a person who's going to derail the good fight of faith. And those of you that are married, who are looking at your spouse, and you can't help but wake up in the morning and find the flaws with them, and they come home from work, and they're tired and exhausted, and you treat each other the wrong way, and you say to yourself, I should have made a different choice. Oh, you made your spouse your God. Whoops. 
They will never satisfy you. God didn't give them to you that you might be satisfied in them alone. Our satisfaction is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the creator of the heaven and earth. It is his blood that bought us. And it is in him that we put our faith. And we, we, we ought to be satisfied. We ought to be content in him. I want to invite um, Seth up to lead us in worship. Now, here's the invitation for us. There's going to be people that are standing up here. And here's the invitation. Are there any of you in this room that are struggling with gratefulness to God? Okay, now it might be over this issue of marriage and singleness, but, but for others of you, it might have to do with your job. It might have to do with relationships in your family. It might have to do with people at work, people in your Bible study, people in this room that get on your nerves, you get frustrated with, you find yourself in your flesh because you're not finding your contentment in Christ and you've lost sight of your greater purpose and your calling, which is to Treat all people the way Christ would treat them. And so if you recognize that there's something incongruent in your life, there's something that's off in the way that you see people and perceive what God's given you, let's use today as an opportunity to get right before the Lord and to worship him with thankfulness and gratefulness for making us exactly who we are and giving us exactly what we need. Amen? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We need you. You are the satisfier of our souls. And, it, and you are the author of our lives. And so when we look in the mirror or we look at the landscape of our lives, Lord, help us to not covet what other people have. Help us to despise it. Help us to resist the devil. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us to be satisfied and content and at peace with where we're at and where we're going, that we might go forth in faith, walking with you, holding your hand, knowing that you want to use us and make our lives full of purpose, to give us joy, to satisfy us in every regard. Help us, God, to see things the way you do. In Christ's name, amen. that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.